Kids love movies. If you're a young person who can't see or can't see well, Audio Description provides access to the visual images that sighted kids enjoy. The benefits of Audio Description in Education Baby Contest, sponsored by ACB's Audio Description Project and the Described and Captioned Media Program, wants those kids to experience Audio Description and then tell us about it. You have a chance to win prizes for yourself and your teacher. Just go to www.dcmp.org slash learn slash 658 to enter and keep on enjoying audio description. Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Good evening and welcome to Tuesday Topics. I'm your host, Paul Edwards, and it's my pleasure to be with you on Groundhog Day. I'm not sure what Phil said, so, but I suspect he suggested more winter, certainly judging by what's going on in the Northeast today and also what's going on where I am in Jacksonville, Florida. Nevertheless, welcome to Tuesday Topics. It is my great pleasure to welcome as my guest from the great city of Austin, Texas, Miss Karen Wolf. Welcome, Karen. Hi, Paul. Thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to this evening. Yep. So I'm going to start with a rather odd question, Miss Karen. What is a, a nice red-blooded American girl who's got all kinds of career choices in the world um, doing getting involved in blindness? So what made you decide that blindness was a field you wanted to work in? Well, there's a humdinger of a question. (laughs) And what I would share with you, Paul, and with the audience is that I never intended to work with blind and visually impaired people. (laughs) It was not on the list. My plan had been to become the next Catherine Hepburn, and I had uh, immersed myself in theater arts and had done my undergraduate work in theater arts gone to New York, realized in New York that I might not have been very well prepared (laughs) for uh, the whole process. I found out Mm -hmm. it was much more political than I had anticipated. Right. uh, Much less based on talent than other talents. Uh And um, I, I meandered off from that and was wandering for a wee bit. And decided that maybe, you know, because kids don't know what they're doing. And I was probably 21 at the time. And I thought, oh, I should just go out to L.A. and do RTF, radio, television, and film, because I hadn't Mm -hmm. been successful with the theater arts thing. And I packed up my bags and put them into a U-Haul trailer and started driving across the country. I'm an Air Force brat, and my dad was stationed in Texas during World War II, and he had relocated there with my mom, who was from England, to Austin. They had retired and come to Austin because dad liked the state. He liked the facts there was no income tax. And I thought, well, I'll just stop in the middle of the country in Austin before I get to L.A., and stay with M&D for a while, you know, recover, recoup, and regenerate. Refinance my adventure. <laughs> there you go. 
<laughs> there's the whole truth. I got here, and my dad, who was an absolutely wonderful human being, unconditional love, walking on two legs. Yep. Never told me don't do that, but sat down with me one day and said, you know, Karen, you've got a lot of talent, but perhaps you should get a job and earn some money before you go off to L.A. (laughs) (laughs) What What a concept, right? Anyway, that's the back door I came through. I got a job and I started working and I was working at and anyone from Texas will recognize this name. I was working at the Chris Cole Rehabilitation Center in Austin, a center, a rehab center set up back in the mid-70s for people who are blind or have low vision and need rehabilitation training. And it was the heyday of rehab. Right. Lots of money pouring in, and I was young and impressionable and I discovered that I really enjoyed the work that I was doing. I was the crafts instructor, you know, you never met a, a, a hip young chick in those days who didn't know how to do macrame and throw pots and so on. And so, and that's what I was doing, Paul, I was working Excellent. in the classroom and from there it just evolved. And I realized that all of my creativity and enthusiasm for people and observation could be put to good use in this field. Mm -hmm. And I went on and I got all of my credentials. I did a master's degree in special education with an emphasis on multiple disabilities because I was Mm -hmm. working with deaf blindness at the time. Right. Then I did my a PhD in rehabilitation counseling, working with an early program to teach job readiness skills at the university, where we worked with rehab clients and we worked with university students so that those counselors and teachers going out into the field would actually work with blind and visually impaired people before they started being responsible for their service delivery. What a good idea. What a great concept, huh? Yeah. And it was a fabulous program. And we had the very first um, doctoral program that we had funded through the feds here. Right, right. On transition training, training up transition counselors to work with all kinds of disabilities. It was a cross-disability program. And Jim Daniels and I ran that program. And when he died suddenly, it it sounds horrible, but I was actually the right person in the right place at the right time. And I simply took over the work that he was doing as a faculty member in the Department of Special Education and, and went on faculty at the University of Texas. Excellent. So it's a long-winded response to your simple question, but I kind of came in the back door. But a good good response. I had the good fortune to work with Natalie Barriga and Anne Korn and Jane Aaron at the University of Texas. It was a pretty wonderful time, Paul. Yep. So after that, you, um, you spent some time working with AFB, developing Career Connect. Um, and um, working on 
other elements. We're not going to spend a lot of time on on that, mostly because um, it's it's um, in a new place, and we hope it's going to emerge in a better place than it has been for the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. But um, subsequent to working with AFB, you you have essentially tried to survive as a consultant. And that has taken you to several places, I think. Tell Mm -hmm. us a little about that. Yeah, it's really been an absolutely wonderful adventure. Um, I really turned my focus to international work when I uh, exited out of AFB and have done a considerable amount of work in the UK with RNIB, Royal National Institute of the Blind, down under in both Australia and New Zealand, in Europe, with not only with UK, but also with Ireland, Denmark, Sweden, many of the European countries, Germany. And I've also been lucky enough to be able to do some brilliant projects here in the United States, up in Maine and with you, Paul, and with some of your colleagues in Florida. We've done Mm -hmm. a great deal of work together. I've done a lot of work in Michigan, in Iowa, just all over the place, frankly, up at Perkins in uh, Massachusetts and at the Carroll Center. So I've I've really been very, very fortunate, and it's actually been a very, very productive time in my career, this work that I've done as a consultant. One of the one of the interesting things is that each of the projects has been a little bit different. Mm-hmm. So um in, in the UK you, you essentially designed a, a a fairly comprehensive employment training program. I did, and I called it the Pre-Employment Program. And those British people, you know, don't know how to spell properly from our perspective, and so it's spelled P-R-O-G, let's see, R-A-M-M-E. Of course it is, yeah. Isn't that the only way to spell it, yeah? Well, it is according to the Brits. Yes, it is. <laughs> My mum was pleased. Mum was pleased we spelled <laughs> it properly, finally. But, yep. um, yes, I did the pre-employment program there, and I have replicated it, Paul, around the world. Here in the United States, up in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Denmark. It's just been brilliant. <coughs> Excuse me. Um and and you you essentially replicated it here in Florida for the rehabilitation center, yes? I did indeed in Daytona Beach. Yep. And and that kind of brings us to to the Florida story, um, which I think is exciting. So um I'll talk for a few minutes and you can catch your breath. Um as chair of the Division of Blind Services Foundation, um, we um, we found that we were a little concerned about the absence of good vocational evaluations for folks who are blind. And this also came up as an issue 
for the Rehabilitation Council for the Blind, which which you guys know is a federal and state partnership uh, that is required by federal and state law and which also meets on a pretty regular basis. And as a result of questions that were raised, Karen was invited to a rehab council meeting and made a presentation at which she uh, provided us with all kinds of information about the uh, current situation with vocation evaluation for blind people. And we found that there was this huge absence. Um, what we found essentially is that the last vocational evaluation tool that had been, that had been developed specifically for folks who are blind was developed in 1991. And essentially, that was before the internet, before computers, before technology became as important as it is. And so, um, there, there came to be kind of a groundswell in, in Florida that we ought to get involved perhaps in a project, um, that would develop a new tool. So what we ended up doing was going to the Division of Blind Services Foundation uh, to see if we could get some funds. The Division of Blind Services Foundation, incidentally, is funded by Bikers Care, which is uh, special licenses that um, are bought by bikers and um, money goes into an account. We're required to spend all the money that we get every year. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a fun program because we get to decide on some projects that we think would benefit. So to cut what has been too long a story, um, it, slightly shorter, we uh, entered into a contract with Karen um, to develop and implement this tool. And Karen, tell us what the, that process was like. Well, thanks, Paul. Yeah, I I would say it's been a wee bit arduous, but yes. a really positive outcome for us. We started in a very methodical way, reaching out to experts in the state of Florida and collecting a series of items to ask of people on this test to determine their strengths, frankly, in employment. Because we felt like that was the thing that was really missing in all these other tools. All the other tools were designed for people who are sighted, basically. And they didn't really get at some of the things that we felt like were important. Use of Braille, use of mobility skills, uh, use of assistive technology, et cetera, et cetera. And so we, we pooled the experts together and had them develop these items. And then we evaluated the items repeatedly until we had some consensus from the group. That process is called a Delphi process. And it is a research process that allows us to cull through lots and lots and lots of items for the ones that are most critical to include. And that took us the better part of a year. We brought in national experts who helped us refine it a wee bit. And then we had our initial tool, which we posted online through SurveyMonkey. 
and we had the first year of a pilot testing process. We came all the way through that process and realized that there were a few things that needed to be tweaked. We needed an auto-scoring process, and we needed to restructure the independent living skills segment of the tool because we had, I had, I will own it. I had put in one of these matrixes that cited people love, you know, the written chauvinist, they love yep. those matrices. And so I had all of these options in a box and people had to work their way through this box. And it was a disaster for people using screen readers. It could be done, but it, it was could. burdensome. It was yes. burdensome. And that was not our intent. So we came back in, we edited the tool, got it back up on SurveyMonkey, cleaned up, straightened up, and auto-scoring for a second round of pilot testing. And really, we, we made good progress with the tool in the second iteration. We really cleaned up the areas we had. We have, in this current iteration, which is the final iteration, eight domains that we look at. Employment, both from an historical perspective and current activities, Mm -hmm. what consumers are actually doing. Training is the second domain, and that looks at both academic skills training that people may have completed or not completed and the levels. It also looks at what vocational training they may have completed and what disability-specific skills training they may have completed. And really probes to find out if they have um, some specific needs in terms of training. The third area is self-advocacy. And in that area, frankly, we are looking both at self-advocacy and self-confidence. How confident people feel, for example, in expressing their abilities and limitations to someone that they know versus someone that they don't know, what accommodations they might need in employment, that kind of thing. The fourth area we look at or domain or is literacy. And there we look at Braille, of course, uh, use of optical devices for reading and uh, other kinds of devices and technology. And I think one of the most interesting things we do in that literacy area is we look both at the tools that people use, including software tools that they use and hardware, and we also look at the frequency of use. And that gives us a very good understanding of the applied nature of people's literacy skills. The fifth area we look at is orientation and mobility, followed by independent living, followed by social and rec leisure activities, and then the final domain we call well-being, and we look at both personal health issues and supports, income coming in and uh, whether or not people are eligible, for example, for uh, veterans benefits, that sort of thing. So it's a very broadly defined area, this area of well-being. 
But the tool has those eight areas, which all score to 100 each, and then the whole tool scores to 800. So it it's, has simplified our process for it and, and made it very easy for us to convey to clients and end users, if you will, exactly where their strengths are in terms of moving into employment. And we yep. categorize the, those into uh, areas based on how much additional intervention an individual might need in order to be comfortable moving into the kind of work that they want to pursue. Yep. And I think there are a couple of there are a couple of interesting things about the tool and about some of the things that we've done with it. Um, the first one. That, that, that I'm excited about is, is that all of our categories are specifically um, aimed at blindness-specific skills. And the importance of that is that none of the other tools that are out there currently that, that, that bear an, any resemblance to currency um, do that. So that's, that's a major element of excitement. The other thing is we have tried not only to reach out to the evaluators who's done the test, but also to some of the folks who have taken the test um, to get their reactions in terms of fine-tuning the test and making it better. So we're pretty satisfied that, um, that the test is good. Um, so two other points. Um, one of them is um, we, we have actually now um, got the test being utilized not just here in Florida, which is, it's exciting enough that it's operating in Florida, but uh, where else is it operating, Karen? Well, it's full-on operating up in Canada. They have adopted the tool for their service delivery arm at CNIB, which is now called Vision Loss Rehabilitation. And and that's very, very exciting because they're not using anything else but this tool in their work with individuals who are blind or have low vision who are interested in moving into employment in Canada. So that's very exciting. And it's under um, consideration both in Denmark and in Australia for implementation as well as some of our other states, like California. So Florida at the moment is pursuing uh, an effort to uh, be able to copyright the test and then be able to make it available as a Creative Commons exercise. And what that means is it would be free to people, but um, there, there will be some limitations that would be placed on them based on copyright. The difficulty is that we must get some some legal changes made by the legislature um, that that legal element is currently uh, is currently being um, completed but but we will be excited once that's available because it will then mean that um, the test will be widely available it'll be free um, and folks will nevertheless um, have some obligation to treat the test in an appropriate way. So we're excited about that. Yeah, that's really the most exciting thing at the moment is this 
option to get it out into the larger community and at no cost to the end user, which is important from my perspective and yours, I know, Paul. Yes. Yep, absolutely. Anyway, enough about Florida. Um, You are also working for the World Blind Union. Tell us what you're doing for them. Well, I have two fabulous projects that I'm involved in with the World Blind Union. I'll mention the first one just briefly, and then I'll go into some detail on that second project. But the first project I work on is called Project Aspiro. And I hope people will make a note of the website that we have developed. It's um, an international employment resources website just for blind and visually impaired people. And you can get there very easily by just typing in www.projectaspiro, P-R-O-J-E-C-T-A-S-P-I-R-O.com. So projectaspiro.com, it takes you directly to a ton of information about job finding, about job exploration, about success stories from people all over the world who are blind or have low vision and are successfully working in a variety of positions. So I I would encourage everyone listening in tonight to take a peek at that website. It's it's very, very positive, but it really needs some Americans. And so I'm hoping that some of the listeners on this program will think about doing videos and sending those over to me or audio files. It doesn't matter to me which I get, but I would love to get some more American stories up there. So Project Aspiro is the one thing that I'm doing. And the second thing that I'm doing, which I promised Paul that I would talk about, is the WBU Employment Survey. And that has truly been a labor of love. It has taken me the better part of a year just to go through all of the data because we had a wonderful response. We, we actually received about 3,000 responses. But by the time we had cleaned it up, that means gotten rid of all of the dead end responses, you know, where people had started but hadn't continued or had entered in accurately and then come back and and didn't eject the one that they had already put in. Once we cleaned everything up, we had about uh, 2,450-odd responses, which is still a lot. It is. (laughs) And it was a fabulous survey because we were able to make it available to people around the world in three languages, English, Spanish, and French. <coughs> of course, that meant that I had to go through the data in English, English Spanish, French. and French. <laughs> Which was challenging, but really, really revelatory in terms of what we learned. Because we combined in our survey both quantitative items, you know, where you could answer yes, no, or choose from five or six options, and qualitative items, which were wide open, tell us what you think kind of comment boxes, edit boxes. 
We did it all on SurveyMonkey. And we made copies available so that if individuals, particularly in other countries, didn't have access to internet and access to devices to complete the survey themselves, they could do it offline in either print or braille, and then service providers could enter in the data to the system. So it has been a a wildly successful survey in many respects. Now, I will tell you right up front that it is not a representative sample of people throughout the world. Because to be very frank with you, almost three quarters of our responses, not quite, but close, were from what I would call um, developed countries. And in fact, four countries made up the bulk of the responses, Australia, Canada, Spain, and the United States. And I'll explain why in just a moment. But that's why it's not representative, because we have most of our responses just from those four countries. We have quite a few responses from other countries. We had about 80-some-odd countries represented in the sample overall. But the other reason why it's not truly representative is that most of the people who responded, which is not surprising, were people who were computer literate. And maybe I should really emphasize literate. They were all literate people. They could read, they could write, they could speak. And that's different than all of the people in the whole world with regard to blindness and visual impairment. We know that in some of those developing countries, that's not the case. They are not all able to go to school, much less Mm well-educated. And so the responders in this survey tended to be well-educated. They tended to be people who were employed, frankly. And so while it's not a representative of the world kind of sample, it's a very representative sample in terms of developed countries and in terms of people who are blind and visually impaired who are connected to their communities, to other people, particularly through organizations like WBU, NGOs around the world, organizations like Vision Australia, Canadian CNIB, yep. CNIB, like ACB, frankly, and CNIB. The consumer organizations were very, very good about getting out the word. And so a lot of, in fact, people on this call may have responded because we tried desperately to reach you guys. Mm -hmm. And we got a a pretty good sample. So when, when will the final results of the survey be published? On Monday. (laughs) On the 8th of February, I'm sending in my final written report. And I anticipate we'll make it public then. Mm -hmm. Do do we get a sneak peek on what some of your findings were? Oh, absolutely. I've already promised you, Paul. And I'm going to to share with you what I think are some of the highlights. I mean, Mm -hmm. for me... 
probably the most, well, first, the employment highlight. In this survey, almost 62.5% of the people were employed. That's wonderful. It's brilliant. I mean, 62.3 exactly were employed. That's over 1,300 people employed that, yep. that responded to this survey. And, and we almost never hear from employed blind people. I know. It is, they just sort of disappear into the woodwork. So that is exciting. It's very exciting. I think the other thing that's pretty cool is that if, if people were not employed, we asked them, have you had a job within the last couple of years or not? We were trying to sort out short and long-term unemployed. Mm-hmm. And basically, we ended up with about 30% who were short-term unemployed and 70% who were long-term unemployed out of that 40, well, 38% who were unemployed. Yep. So again, I think it's pretty interesting that quite a few of those folks were short-term unemployed. In terms of the long-term unemployed, I think it's important to note that out of that 70% who were short were long-term unemployed, almost 40% of those folks were retired. Got it. So I think that's also important to get the big picture and understand that the people who responded to this survey were employed or they were recently employed or they were retired more so than that picture that we sometimes get of long-term overwhelmingly um, poverty-stricken people yeah. who are blind or visually impaired. It's very, very different. And, and who essentially, who essentially appear never to be employed or only to be employed for sporadic periods. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And then I think the other things that absolutely leapt out at me were that a lot of people in this survey were using Braille, which uh, I think, well, I know Paul and I both agree that it's a, a critical skill, particularly with regard to employment. But I tell you, the thing that was most impressive to me is I came back through all this data and looked at people who were working, people who were short-term unemployed, people who were long-term unemployed. And I looked at that level of information specific to those top four countries. And in the United States, which we are all very, very concerned about, (laughs) because this is where we live. Yep. What I discovered was that we are doing so much better in terms of Braille than you might anticipate from some of the verbiage that we hear. And in fact, of the employed blind people in this survey living in the United States, 56, just over 56% of them used Braille. Wow. Yeah. And so, well, of course, I asked how often. <laughs> yeah. How often do you use Braille? And 74% said every day. 
So I just couldn't resist telling you that little tidbit because I think it's very, very important. The other thing I will share with you is, and and you have to remember that that 74% is only based on the 100 or so people who right. responded yes to Braille, not yeah. everything. Right. But when you ask all of those employed blind people in the United States preferred reading medium, you do discover that basically 59% of those employed people prefer electronic media. Mm -hmm. And I think that also speaks volumes and speaks to what is going on currently in the labor market. Yes. More and more and more people in this country and throughout the world are using electronic media for their primary reading medium. Right. But I was very, very pleased to see that so many people in the United States are using Braille and that they are using it frequently. So those were a couple of really like jump out at you results from quantitative stuff. I thought you might be interested in a couple of tidbits from the qualitative Please. Because I actually prefer the qualitative. I mean, numbers are great and I'm into them, but it's when you really get to talk to people and listen to people and hear from them that you figure out what's really going on, I think. Yes. And so when I asked people about what they liked the most. And this is people from throughout the world, not just in the United States. I asked everyone who took our survey, what do you like the most about your jobs? And what do you like the least about work? Those two sides of the coin, if you will. And what they told me in the order of their importance That means the most times they told me. Right. People said to me that the most important thing about work was the people. Coworkers, employers, customers, clients, students. It was the people. It was the people and the interaction and engagement with the people. The second thing they told me over and over again was the money, <laughs> salary. They, you know, sometimes they just would say something like, I just like being paid. <laughs> yeah. I like having a paycheck. It's really important to me to be paid. And earning I think my own money. Yeah. Earning my own money was number yeah. two. Number three was accommodations so that a worker who has vision loss can be productive. Yep. That is critically important to blind Mm -hmm. people. (laughs) (laughs) It is. It it was underscored in this survey over and over for me. The fourth thing they mentioned was respect. The respect that comes from being treated as an equal and, uh, and receiving that positive regard from others and making a contribution all to me boiled down to respect the fifth, the fifth one was flexibility, and that was typically mentioned by people who were working remotely 
or by people who had chosen self-employment. And then the last one that I thought was important to mention to all of you was intellectual challenge. The fact that work provided that ongoing intellectual challenge in their lives. Now, it, it probably wasn't a part of, of, of your survey, nor, nor does it necessarily have to be. But did you get any indication um, from the folks who got involved in the survey of how many of them were involved in consumer organizations? You know, I didn't really get a, a clear sense of it, Paul. But I know that these respondents came to me via NGOs and organizations, including consumer organizations. And I know that people said things in their surveys about working for organizations of and for the blind. So I know that there was a substantial number of people who were connected to organizations, frankly. But I didn't have a specific question about uh, membership in organizations. We have covered um, an immense amount in in a little over 40 minutes. Um, And after this last question, I think we're going to open it up and see if folks have some some comments or questions that we can add to and expand the discussion with. But my last question is, in your travels around the world, have you noticed differences among blind people in other countries or are, or are we mostly the same? <laughs> I think people around the world are mostly the same, but there yes. are some differences. There are some differences. And I would share with you that one of the big differences that I see in, in the blind populations around the world is in the reliance on technology versus the reliance on foundation skills. For example, in Australia, where I'm very, I'm very proud of the work they're doing, but almost no one uses Braille. And mobility is not that important as, as opposed to here in the United States and in many of the other countries where we put a great deal of importance on those disability specific skills like mobility and Braille. Uh, I, I saw a lot of difference in terms of um, the the kinds of um, employment opportunities too. You know, we don't realize in the United States until we get away from the United States about how fortunate we are in terms of the array of choices that we have. Yeah, I think that's correct. Yeah. I mean, people in other parts of the world don't have the same level of choices. I mean, we had, higher employment, for example, in Spain than in any of the other big three countries. But it's because they have that subsidized employment through their lottery system. Exactly. And so if you're blind and you're selling tickets, that's your job. And that's the yep. pretty much, it wasn't the only job they were doing in Spain, but it was a large portion of the jobs they were doing mm-hmm. in Spain versus the United States where we have lots of diversity. Yep, we do. Mr. Rick, do we have any hands? Yeah, we do. Anisio, please. Mr. Correa. Hi, Anisio. 
How are you? I'm good. How wonderful to hear your voice. Thank you. I was so excited when I read the message from Paul saying that you were going to be the guest. So it's wonderful to hear from you. And I'll be in touch with you afterwards. But I have I have two questions, if Paul indulges me. Sure. Uh, the first one is regarding your survey you were just talking about um, and the the role of the, the the role of Braille that you saw um, among the employed uh, people. I I remember using research that was very old already to justify the the the, the importance of Braille. I think it was a study from um, the Oregon State. I forgot the gentleman name that ended up working for. Yeah, yeah there was another one done in Louisiana, but the, right. the data, the data wasn't it's great. Old, but, yeah, but they basically old. were trying yeah. to demonstrate that you know people that are, that the, there was a correlation between use of Braille and employment. I wonder if you can get that from your study, or is that too much of a reach? No, no, I I think it really is pretty clear in this study, Anicio, because. There's a big difference between the, the use of Braille overall when you look at the uh, data from all of the respondents with regard to um, employment and not employed and not employed. And I, I can send you some of those comparisons once we have it all published and, and signed, sealed, and delivered. Yeah, I would love to, to see that. Thank you. And the, the other question is go, goes back to your the tool that you developed for Florida, the, the mm-hmm. tool. I'm wondering how, it sounds really wonderful, but I'm wondering how you suggest incorporating into that then the, the, the other pieces of job exploration and career identification and all, all that, those other, those other tools. <clears throat> I'll let well, Karen respond, and then and then I'll, I want to add one thing. Sure. Go, Karen. Yeah, well, what I was going to share with you, Anicio, is that the perfect example, in my opinion, is up in Canada, where we are using the tool to evaluate clients and see whether or not they need any of the services that are on offer. And then, depending on where they need assistance, providing them with options like the pre-employment program, if they need some help, for example, with those employment-related skills, like looking for a job or working on a resume or figuring out what it is they want to be when they grow up, then we would guide them toward that training. Versus if we see that they need disability-specific skills training, where we would guide them toward the rehab teacher working with them on independent living skills or Braille skills or the mobility specialist on mobility skills. So I think the beauty of this tool, and I didn't say it, I probably should have, is that ideally it would be used as an intake tool. Okay, right to sort people into, instead of blind people constantly being asked to do things that they don't want to do or don't need to do, right, right. they could choose their training based on actual needs. And that's what this tool is trying to do. Right. And, and what I was going to add is that the other thing that we've, that we've done in ECU is, is designed a continuum from really is job ready and needs no training 
through really needs an, an immense amount of training and may not be able to do it. Um, and, and the reason we've done this is because we want this, this intake tool or this, this early implementing anyway, um, tool, um, to create an opportunity for, for both agencies and local rehab programs, um, to be able to, to adequately justify the kinds of training that are available, but also to clearly and unequivocally say to the agency, look, that if this person's going to be successful, this person needs training in these areas. Right. So before you send that person out to fail, it's incumbent upon you to provide that training. Mm-hmm. And of course, as you can well imagine, this is a client-centered tool. So if a client comes in and, say, scores low in mobility at night, I would not see see that as a ding, but as an opportunity to sit with the person and discuss it and talk about, do you need to be out at night? Do you want to be out at night? Would it benefit you to receive training in this area? If the client says to me, I'm never going out at night and I don't want it, I'm going to let it go. So it's not a a right-wrong kind of a test. It's a, a guidance tool. Right. Well, thank you so much, and Karen. I'll be in touch. It was wonderful hearing hearing your voice. And Paul, thanks again for the opportunity. Oh, you're welcome, Anisio. I look we're, forward to hearing from you, Anisio. We're, we're we're glad you're in Florida, sir. <laughs> um. All right. Who is next, Mister Rick? Uh, Sharon, please. Yep, Sharon. Hi, Paul. This is Sharon in Massachusetts. How are you, Miss Dolkowski? <laughs> well, we have about 14 inches here of snow. This is, this is... <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, we're good. And Karen, it is such a pleasure to hear you speak. I've seen your name in writing for a long time. Um, and the, what I'm um, calling in about is I was a vocational rehab counselor for about 19 years. Mm-hmm. And the kind of person that I never felt successful with at all would be a man who would come in who lost his sight at 50 as a manual laborer with poor literacy when he could see even. Right. And, and I just wonder um, how this uh, tool that you're, that's being used in Florida and Canada has addressed that kind of person. And has it, have there been ways to do any interventions that maybe I missed? Well, Sharon, I think it's a challenging, challenging kind of human that you're talking about, frankly, because we understand both of us, well, all of us, I think, on this call understand that in this labor market, information is key. And so if you can't process information and handle information, which means reading and writing, Mm -hmm. you're in trouble in this labor market. I think the best thing I can offer up for this query is to share with you that I think what this tool does is help the person identify transferable skills that they may still be able to use in a, in a new kind of setting and to help ameliorate some of those um, feelings of low self-esteem and anxiety by helping them understand that it's a process and that if they're going to try to learn skills like using a computer device, they Mm -hmm. 
they may have some challenges there. And I think that you and I both understand that these kinds of guys, it's usually guys. Uh, it's usually guys, yeah. Are just in so much trouble. But uh, I think from a counseling perspective, what I think is more critical than anything is that they come to us with such diminished self-esteem. And right. I think the beauty of this tool is they see quickly that they do have competencies. It may be in independent living. It may yes. be in uh, health and well-being. It may be in social skills. But it gives them that feeling again that they are not completely trashed. <laughs> right. And, and, and the other issue that, that I think is important, Sharon, is that, is that what the tool is giving them are some blindness-specific notions of where they are. Um, which is mm-hmm. what none of the other vocational evaluation tools we're giving them. Would, would do. Yeah. For instance, now they're not going out of the house by themselves when yep. they used to drive a truck. You exactly. Know? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, thank you very much. And I look forward Ms. to really seeing that. Yeah. Yep. Miss Sharon, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. M- Mr. Rick? Chris Coulter, please. Yep. Yeah, my my question kind of dovetails with Sharon's and 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 what she had to say. But one of the things that I'm thinking about is do you have a specific age range that you for example when the tool is when the in the introduction to the tool does it say between the ages of 18 and 65 or between the ages of this and that or does just anyone who has some kind of employment, even if it's um, a, a small pay for some kind of job while they're retired or whatever. Do they still, you know, use those tools too, or is there an age range? Well, you know, we really didn't put an age range. We did not impose an age range. Mm-hmm. What has happened, very frankly, is that because it is a research project and I ran it through human subjects review, I basically indicated in my human subjects review package that it would be individuals 18 and above because I did not want to hassle with getting permissions from parents and dealing with all of the stuff that goes into evaluating a test with um, minors. So. Only from that perspective, the research perspective, does it have an age limit on it. And what I have been telling counselors and teachers with whom I work is that if they would like to use the test with younger people and they have permission from the guardian or parent, that they are welcome to do so, that I think it has a lot of validity, face validity, for students between the ages of about 14 and 18, but I didn't test it with them, frankly. I didn't pilot it with them. And so I can't speak specifically to that because I didn't include it. But we are using it with younger individuals, both in Florida and in uh, Canada, because we know that it can be effective. Now, And, and oh, I also think that it, that, that it can be used for retired folks who are just interested in doing a little work who may come to vocational rehabilitation, you know, after they've retired and begin to lose vision, because at some point they've, if, if they're really thinking of employment, 
they've got to measure what their blindness specific skills are in 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 order to establish whether or not they're going to be able to do the kind of job they want to and the blindness skills do change over time as they you do. age so that's sure. yeah. Well, and frankly, one of the most cogent responses I received from a consumer was a gentleman who had retired, gone to one of the lighthouses, had taken the test, and then realized in the test that there were some areas within the disability-specific skills where he really needed to beef up his skills, and that then enabled him to go back to work. And so he was thrilled to pieces both with the outcome, because he did get a really good job out of it all, but also with the idea that, you know, he thought he knew everything, but he didn't. (laughs) Well, that's great, though, that he got a good job out of it. Oh, it was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. Mm -hmm. Chris, thank you so much. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Rick? If I'm getting this right, it's who that Herbert? Herbert, (laughs) this is Kim. Hey, Kim. And, um, First of all, I want to know if you need an assistant. <laughs> because, Karen, do you um, need an assistant? Oh, I thought you were asking Paul if he wanted no, a no, Vanna. No. <laughs> <laughs> I no, wish that I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, if you're asking me, I would love to have an assistant, but I don't really have the flexibility right now to add an assistant into my uh, cadre. <laughs> I can well, barely keep I, up with me. <laughs> in following the last two ladies that spoke, my topic is kind of on the same lines because I have Stargardt's disease. So mm-hmm. I've lost my vision along the way. And I've gotten to the point where I can I don't read Braille because I was never taught it, because I didn't need it. And now I can hardly read anything, you know, even with my uh with my computer and the magnification, I have to make it so big and, and everything yep. is hard to read. So I, um, I used to work for DARS in Texas and I moved to Louisiana about eight years ago and I stayed home with my mother who was ill and I didn't, so I haven't worked for eight years. And since, since then she has passed away and I hooked up with the Lighthouse for the Blind to try to um, get a job. And they did, they must have done something similar to what you're doing, what you have, or what you're talking mm-hmm. about. Because um, it just, you know, it just sounded really familiar. But I, they have not contacted me. I haven't had any kind of interviews or, or anything. And, and I, I just, I'm just, yeah, I'm 58 years old, and I want to go back to work. Mm-hmm. I getcha. Well, you know, my advice my advice would be to call them back, and if you don't mm-hmm. get any response, um, then then I'd be going to the agency and saying to the agency, um, look, the, the the lighthouse, which which I'm sure the agency provides some funding for, um, is not responding to me. What are you going to do about it? Yeah, I think you have to reach out, Kim, because if they haven't gotten back to you, you're going to have to take the lead. And I realize we're asking you to do something that's probably not very easy for you to do because you you don't uh, necessarily want to push push on doors, but you're going to have to do it. Push on those yeah. doors and let them know that you are 
eager to move back into work. I would just add one thing to what Paul said. I would seriously encourage you to think about dual media, not just rely on vision at this stage of the game, but to use audio input and and start back again working on the Braille. But I think to rely exclusively on vision is going to undermine your progress at this stage of the game. You need dual media, maybe right. print and audio for the moment, but evolving eventually to audio and Braille. Yep. All right. Well, I, I have put in a request to have an assistive technology evaluation so I can learn, um, like, uh, the Jaws computer. That sort of thing. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, that's a good step, Kim. That's a very good step. But I think, I think it's a Corona that's got people, you know, where they, they're not doing it and uh, they have not contacted me back about that either. And I know I need to call them to, um, or call them about that also, but I don't know why we can't do it through a zoom call, like teaching, um, uh, what is that computer program? I can't. Jaws, Jaws, but there's a free one. NVDA. NVDA. NVDA, yes. And I can't see that they can't. I just think that they could probably do it through Zoom calls, you know, teach me how to do NVDA because I've been trying to do it myself and it's it's a pain. But anyway, I I don't want to monopolize all your time. But I did have one more question. What was the address, the uh, website, www.asparrow.com? Uh-huh. It's called Project Aspiro. So the oh. website is www.projectaspiro, all written together. I looked P- up the project. Okay. Uh huh. Yeah. P R O J E C T A S P I R O dot com. Dot com. Okay. Okay. It's so like Aspire, but with an O. Right. Thank Excellent. you very much for your time. Thank you, Kim. Mr. Rick? Penny Reader, please. Penny Reader. Hey, Paul. And hi, Karen. It's so nice to talk with you again. Hey, Penny. Hey. How are you? I'm you good. And wonderful. you? You sound wonderful. Oh, you I just too. wanted to say uh, to the Saints fan, um, Hadley has a lot of free classes in assistive technology, and it might be a way for her to get started if she's trying to learn NVDA. Um, I'm so excited about what you guys are doing. I, uh, I'm dying to see the uh, assessment tool. Uh, is there a way I can look at it? <laughs> Absolutely. You just email me, Penny. I will. I will do it tomorrow. Remember, um, it's just my name, KarenWolf at gmail.com. And that's F-F-E rather than right. a plain wolf. I remember. I remember. <laughs> um, and I'm really excited about the survey, too. Is there a component of your assessment tool that measures, like, a person's interest? I know you're measuring aptitudes and, and abilities, but... No, Penny, what I encourage people to do is capture interests and values and all of those other wonderful components through other tools, you know, either the... Sure, the things that already oh, exist. Right, ONET or um, yeah. Yeah, SDS, the self-directed search. That's what right. I encourage people to do. 
And, and how are you going to get this tool on the national platform? Because other people need to see it besides just people in Florida. <laughs> We're working on it. We're working on yes. it. That's great. Um, we, are, we are not sitting still, Miss Penny, I promise. And, and the other thing that I'll say is, and we really haven't talked much about it, we're developing as well a manual that goes along with the tool um, oh, that actually that actually goes directly to some of the questions that you're raising. So we do recommend tests for things like interests and for other areas that the tool doesn't measure. Well, that is super. Um, you know, I work at the VA, but I'm not involved at all in assessment, but it might be a good place to start if you're thinking about. I know well, people have been asking about grown-ups and... Uh, a lot of those yeah. people would really benefit from this kind of assessment. And so, we haven't anyway, talked to the VA, so that's a good should, plan. You should. I think you should. Absolutely. Um, Very good point, Penny. So nice to Thanks. talk to you again, Karen, and you too, Paul. I'm so glad you sound better this week than last. That's really good. <laughs> uh, thank you, Miss Penny. <laughs> You're welcome. I'll see you later at the BOP. And thank you, Karen. You will. Thank you, Penny. Write to me. I'd love to hear from you. I would too. I'll do it. Thank you. Thanks. Mr. Rick. Phone number ending in 4388, please. That's Mitch. Hey, Mitch. Oh, hey, Hello, Mitch. Paul. Hello, Karen. How, how nice to hear your voice. And you, I didn't get to say that you were on that employment committee with me at WBU. Well, and uh, I hope uh, that uh, myself and others gave uh, some valuable input to you. Absolutely. It, it really uh, is a wonderful uh, survey couple of things. One, um, Karen, if you'll send me kind of a, a synopsis of, of your assessment document, I serve on uh, the Blind Advisory Committee to our State Department of Rehabilitation, and uh, we've got a meeting coming up in a couple of weeks, but we'll be meeting again in May, and hopefully I could arrange to have you make a Zoom presentation about that assessment tool at our meeting. I think a lot of our folks would be really interested in hearing about it. Um, you know, jumping off of, of Sharon's comment, one of, well, there are several, but the one, one of the downsides to passage of WIOA here is the focus specifically on youth, and while that in and of itself is a good thing, what we're seeing in California is a de-emphasis of serving folks who uh, have lost their vision in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. Um, and, and so I think a lot of those folks who uh, could go back to work, maybe even in the same field or a similar field to what, to what they were in prior to losing their vision, um, aren't able to do that. And, you know, it's something that a couple of us uh, in California keep pushing because uh, most of the money is going toward assisting, uh, you know, transition age youth without realizing how many folks lose their vision in the prime of their working lives and uh, are stuck. Uh, they're not able to go back to work because they don't get the uh, they don't get the training and the resources just aren't there. Right, right. Well, and Mitch, the survey bears you out because overall, almost fifty percent of the working respondents 
were between the ages of 45 and 64. So, you know, it makes me think that we're, we're really missing the boat if we're not paying attention to those guys. Well, I, I don't recall when WIOA comes up for, uh, for reauthorization, but, but it's something that uh, I hope that we can have ACB um, really lean on the powers that be to uh, loosen up some purse strings so that those folks are um, given a better opportunity to, uh, yeah. to get back into the workforce. So Yeah, I agree with you, Mitch. Yep. Yeah. So, so can you, uh, send me kind of a synopsis, and uh, and I'll try to get you on our uh, on our May program. I'd be delighted to, Mitch. No problem. Uh, all, right. Take care and, all right. Take care. All right. Take care, Paul. Thank you, sir. And thank Bye. you for all your input, Mitch, on that employment survey. Mitch has been one of the most proactive members on our WBU employment committee, and I really, really have appreciated having him there. An old friend well, and good advocate. <laughs> well, thank, thanks, thanks much, Karen. It's uh, you know, it's a, a special interest of mine, and I've been involved in one way or the other. Well, you know, forty plus years. So, thanks very much for your kind words. My yep. pleasure. Excellent. Take care. Take mm-hmm. care, Mister Rick. And that's it for now, Paul. All right. So, Miss Karen, let's talk a little bit about. Um, some of the components um, that we really haven't talked about that were an, an area that you worked on for a long time. And, and I, I want to begin by asking, um, in terms of working on transition as you have for quite a while, do, do you see the emphasis that's been placed on it by WIOA as appropriate or uh, or do you think we've gone overboard well i think that the initial intent which was the 15 percent yes companies, was appropriate but i think if they're doing overkill like it sounds like it's happening out in california then i no longer see that being appropriate because you know the educational system is already there it's already strong it's an already um, well-funded system, frankly. And rehab for adults is not as well-funded, and we have a lot more adults than there are kids. So I've, I'm with Mitch in as much as I really think we need to pull back, and we really need to look closely at, A, what's most important, and B, how is it best to deliver services? And I, I want to make a couple of quick comments, if you'll allow me to, Paul. I will. That go back to the survey again with the sure. World Blind Union, because the one thing I didn't mention to you, we didn't actually get to it, were the things that were most bothersome for our blind and visually impaired workers around the world. And I think it is food for thought and something we should be thinking about as we move forward in the reauthorization of WIOAA or into the reauthorization of the Rehab Act or any of the other legislative um, efforts that we make. Because the number one hassle, and it will be no surprise to anyone on this call, is transportation. Yep. We still don't have those 
automatic cars, you know, the self-driving, tell me where you want to go, I'll take you there, Flintstones, Jetsons kind of thing. Yep. And that's the biggest hassle worldwide. More people mentioned transportation hassles to me than any other problem on the face of Earth. The second most difficult thing for people out there in the world is the inaccessibility of the work environment. And it's both technology and software and it's paper. (laughs) I mean, it's just mind-boggling to me that we are in the 21st century and we still have this level of inaccessibility. Even if you can get in the door, the challenge becomes keeping up with the Joneses in terms of the rapid pace of change in terms of technology and programs in particular that are specific to the work environment. And that was the second biggest challenge that people had. That and the fact that people just insist on giving them flat pieces of paper (laughs) that they can't read (laughs) or pointing to them, you know, the infamous, don't you see it? It's just over there. Well, if I could see it, I wouldn't be asking you where it was. Yeah. But this inaccessibility is a huge, huge issue, both in terms of technology, paperwork, and handwritten forms. Paul, we've got Dan Spoon. Mr. Spoon. Hi, Paul. Hi, Karen. I I had to get on and say hi. I had a wonderful, delightful opportunity to meet Karen this year at the ACB of Texas uh, convention. She was kind enough to invite me to participate on a leadership panel, and it was really a wonderful experience. So hi, Karen. Thank you very much to you for being there, Dan. It was great. And to hear your voice again. Very nice to hear from you. And I want to, your two, your two number one and two barriers that you just spoke about, I, I'm always interested in terrible things like COVID-19 with the virus, but, but some silver linings that have come out of this. And I also have the opportunity to, to serve on a, a lighthouse board in Florida. And they, you know, they, they operate a call center. And what we're seeing now is that call center contracts are willing to consider remote employment, where before they always wanted people to be there in the brick and mortar. Now, with COVID, they've loosened up those restrictions, and it seems like that's really opening up an opportunity to many more people. It, it eliminates the transportation barrier. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of cases, the access barrier, because now everybody has to communicate with each other electronically, which can be our sweet spot, uh, because they're, they're not there to, to see a piece of paper and so, or an overhead projector. So I, I've been very pleased by the potential opportunity there for employment in areas that we didn't see open a year ago. And, well, and, at the, and at the Lighthouse, you've actually doubled and tripled and quadrupled the contract, right, sir? That, that's right. And, and before, yeah. like our state, our state agencies weren't willing for those folks to work remote. But now, because of COVID, they, because everybody needs to work remote, they're, they're loosening those contracts. And so right. 
I'm wondering if you think that could be a phenomenon that repeats itself across the country and the world. I think very much so. And I, I see a lot, like you, I see a lot of positivity coming out of this whole lockdown mentality where we've moved everything to a remote work site kind of place. I think the only drawback, in my opinion, is the lack of socialization. And I think that has been hard for everyone. But I think the opportunities from a work perspective are absolutely brilliant. And I would share with you that one of uh, another really big plus is that many of the young people who were trapped in this online learning situation that folks have been dealing with over the last few years, last couple of years, seems like a few, but it's just a couple, um, is that that's having the same kind of consequence, Dan. We had a group of um, young adults who were in university on a special project with World Blind Union and ICEVI, the International Council for Education of Blind and Visually Impaired People. And they did their work before COVID in an online environment, university work. And then when COVID hit, they were the best candidates for some of those remote work opportunities and were able to compete and and capture jobs that other people couldn't compete for because they didn't have that same level of expertise in that virtual environment. So I think, yes, what you're saying is absolutely true, but B, we ought to really be paying close attention to the consequences in terms of how we are working with young people and preparing them in the academic situation to take those skills and transfer them immediately into work, remote work. I agree with you, Karen. And I think we're seeing this even with our rank and file ACB membership. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, Paul and Rick could, could comment on this, but you know, we had no one that understood zoom hardly a year ago And now through our ACB community events, we have about 75 people trained up to be Zoom hosts. And and, Mm -hmm. and they now have these skills. And in many cases, they're teaching their sighted peers how to operate and navigate. So it's it's been very, very interesting. Well, and I'm sure encouraging all those folks to put it on your resume. (laughs) Yes, please do. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, have a wonderful evening. Great show. Good to hear from you, Karen, and uh, great job, Paul. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, Dan. Thank you. And any hands that we should be responding to, Mr. Rick? Uh, yeah, not now, Paul. I'll let you know, though, if any come up. Hmm. All right. So, so Karen, we were talking about transition and um, mm-hmm. and the degree to which um, it, it may be being overemphasized now. Um, do you think that, based on on your experience, folks are doing a good job with transition? Because I know that I retired in 2013, I guess, or 20, yeah, 2013, I think. God, it's and, been that, that long? Yeah, it has. Oh, <laughs> and Time before, goes by fast, huh? It does. <laughs> and, but before 2013... If, if you had asked me how effective transition between high school and afterwards was, I would have had some serious questions. 
Mm-hmm. So do you think it's gotten better? Well, I wish I could say I thought it had become universally better, but I really don't, Paul. I mean, I, I think the problem is still a, a, a disconnect between what's being taught in school and what's needed in the work and adult life. Right, right. I think there's still a big disconnect there. I think what's happening with these um, pre the, uh, uh, pre-ETS programs, they're calling them, mm-hmm. pre-employment training services, the, the problem is they're emphasizing work placements, which is uh, there's a place for work placements. There's an important place for work placements. And I think that's a really important thing that v- VR can do is to provide some of those work experiences. But the truth of the matter is, is that our educational system, I believe, is missing the point of an education, which is to prepare people for adult life. And so, you know, we shifted back about 20 years ago to a much more uh, academically oriented curriculum. And we eliminated from the curriculum the things like career education and vocational skills training and uh, preparation for We took away a lot of things. We took away a lot of the arts and we we just we took away things like home ec and we took away things like shop woodworking and those are areas where people learn transferable skills and we've right. shoved everyone into these intense academic skills based training situations and i mean going back to what sharon said about those folks who come in the door who are not academically oriented. There are a lot of those folks out there, and we've never had a good vocational skills training program in the United States, a certificate-based kind of program that encouraged young people who wanted to become tradesmen or tradeswomen right. get into those courses and participate in those courses with or without disabilities. Right. I mean, there now, are a lot there- of young people with disabilities who should be in cosmetology or woodworking or right. um, office skills. I mean, a lot of blind adults are working in office environments, doing office-related kinds of work. But where's their training for that? It's it's basically just academic training that they then learn the skills for the job on the job. Yep. Wouldn't it no. be nice if we were doing like at the community colleges, Paul? We used it to try to fill the gap. Yes. Are other countries um, getting blind people involved in, in, in uh, apprenticeships? They are. And they are doing a much better job than we are in terms of apprenticeships. I mean, Europe is famous for its apprentice right. programs. I mean, Germany has led the world in terms of apprentice programs. At RNIB and at VA, both of those big organizations have apprentice programs just for blind youth. And I and think, v- VA is Vision Australia, by the way. Right. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, Vision Australia and Royal National Institute of the Blind. I'm sorry, I speak in acronyms sometimes. Yes. But both of those big organizations have very specific programs just for young people to participate in apprenticeships within their organizations. Yeah. 
And I think that's important. I mean, a lot of the young adults that I spoke with in in um, Australia had participated in these apprentice programs before they had entered into work. Even if they didn't want to go into the trades or into office clerical work, it's good um, ground setting, foundation skills development kind of classes that they're taking. Right. And it's also an intermediate environment where academics is not fundamentally important and where where practical capacities and and hand-eye or, or hand-ear coordination gets built as well. And those interpersonal skills. Absolutely right. It's those interpersonal skills. They are not learning those skills. It, everybody treats them with um, like they're little glass animals in a menagerie <laughs> in the schools. These blind kids, you know, you, they don't they don't get the kind of um, intense feedback that the sighted kids get about well, their work, their productivity. And, it's and, a problem. And, right, and virtually and are virtually never included in career education anyway. No. So no. by the time they, they leave high school, they have no idea what's out there and no well, idea what skills they might have. The other piece of it is is that no one thinks to tell them about things that they don't think they can do. And so <laughs> they don't have any chance of learning about all these different options. I mean, I tell people all the time when kids are in Kindergarten, first grade, third through third grade, that's the time to be turning them on to all the different kinds of jobs and ideas exactly. about jobs, just like all the other kids are learning. But our right. kids read a book. Yeah, and they exactly. May or may not understand what they're reading, Paul. So this is also true. Nancy, we, we have uh, Nancy Miller. Miss Nancy? Yes. Hi. Good evening. It's Nancy Miller from Vision Services for the Blind and Visually Impaired in New York City. Uh, hi, hey, Nancy. Nice to hear your voice. Yes. Great to hear you. So I did want to mention that Visions created a pre-ETS program for the 18 to 22-year-old blind population that actually introduces those young people to some careers that you wouldn't necessarily think that blind people would be interested in. And we've had some great success um, training young blind adults for nurse's assistant, teacher assistant. We just had a young man graduate as an HVAC technician. Wouldn't have been my job choice, but he was still excited about doing heating and ventilation and air conditioning. Right. And and also um, vet assistant. You know, all of these courses are available at the local community colleges, but... Many blind people don't know about it, or if they do, the courses aren't necessarily accessible. So the role that Visions has played is making sure that the course is accessible and then making sure that the young adults know that these courses are there and they get to choose the ones that they're interested in. We also have a customer service curriculum and Uh, an office assistant, uh, executive assistant curriculum that's been very popular. But 
the issue that I find is that our state commission for the blind is not referring young adults to these programs. And, you know, we've got this great facility, brand new building, you know, totally set up for that peer group support and group experience, all the social skills. They get assistive technology, VRT, O&M, Braille if they, if they need um, any kind of training. And yet there's a disconnect between the programs available through the private nonprofit rehab agencies and the state commissions. So I I wondered if you could comment on what your experience has been with the state agencies and whether or not they're promoting these opportunities because they have a role to play as well. Thank you, Nancy. Yeah, Nancy, I think you're spot on with what you're saying. I mean, I've always thought of Visions as being a very innovative and creative programmer. So it doesn't surprise me to hear that you're doing all those wonderful things. And it makes sense to me that you would offer up that kind of training to young people. That's what they need. That That's the kind of bridging that we need to do between school and work. In terms of the disconnect with state commission, you know, I think it's a challenge around the country, frankly, because we've had a lot of mixed messaging coming down from these um, agency heads about what's acceptable and what's not acceptable and what's, what's viable and who should be the vendor for this and who should be the vendor for that. And I think it's, 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 it's very challenging times that we live in right now. My best recommendation to you would be to market what you are doing to the young people themselves and their families. Market what you are doing and, and turn all of those wonderful um, success stories into ambassadors and see if you can't get those young adults who have come through the program to speak to other young people who might be interested and to, because it's the young people themselves and their families who are going to have to put the pressure to bear on the state commission. I think the problem with the state commissions is that they become too set in their ways. They become, um, they're, they're, they're just blind, pardon the pun, to the opportunities that are out there, or they've, they've become desensitized to what's available, think they know what you're doing, and they don't really know what you're doing. So I would, I would try to turn those kids into, or young adults, I shouldn't call them kids, into ambassadors. And then I would try to do some open houses, Nancy. I'm, I'm right. sure you probably have already thought of it, but I would do some open houses And I would invite those rehab counselors and the consumers to come in and take a look once again at what you're doing and have your ambassadors on hand to talk about what they did when they were in the programs. I think that's the key. It's the marketing. Right. And the other thing I'd say is that is, is the press love blind success stories and, and the more publicity that you get for what you're doing, the more difficult it becomes for the state agency to turn its back. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, because consumers read the newspaper. <laughs> they do. I'm right. <laughs> and listen to the radio. <laughs> but their families certainly do. Thank you. Yep. Nancy, thank you for your call. And Sharon's back. I'm Sharon. back. <laughs> Hi, Sharon. Hi. This brings me to um, when we're talking about specific vocational training, it makes me think that there's a new group of people or maybe just newly recognized um, blind children that have cortical cortical visual impairment. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is another thing that I don't think our state agencies are really dealing with that well. Um, This is where it's not a matter of lack of using the eyes. It's the coordination between the brain and and uh, cognition and all kinds of things. And I really wonder what will happen with them because they are not going to be academic primarily. Well, those, those CVI cases, you have to understand, are all neurologically based yeah. vision processing problem people. The primary disability is not Uh, functionality of the eye, but functionality of the brain. And so they have great difficulty process. They can see just fine. Many of them, not all of them, but many of them can see well enough, but their brains can't interpret what they are seeing and make sense of it. And so the challenge is really the challenge of working with them while they are young and still plastic enough in the brain to rewire in essence. And and that's basically what the school-based professionals are trying to do is intervene and work with those young people to rewire. It sounds like a machine, but rewire the brain because, you know, the brain is so plastic when they are young. The, I don't think, too terribly many of these young people make it into vocational rehab within the blindness system. They tend I don't think to they do. Yep. No, they tend to go into the general agency for people with uh, neurological or cognitive intellectual kinds of problems because that's where they're being served typically. We used to see some at the rehab center here in Austin, but it was rare. And what we found was that we had to work with them as if they were advocacy level clients, meaning that we had to support them to find what kind of work they could do that was rote work. Uh It wasn't competitive work. It was typically sheltered kind of work or supported kind of work in the community. It, It rarely was competitive labor market. Right. And and that's an issue with Wyola because that is anathema to them, you know, uh, to have non-competitive stuff, which is ridiculous. It is is ridiculous. I mean, when Mitch was talking about it, I was thinking to myself, you know, why aren't we going back down there and pounding on the table about continuum of services? Because those, those young kids and young adults really need supported and sheltered employment. Right. They don't, and it's good. There's they're nothing not, wrong with it. No, there's nothing wrong with it. They're not Absolutely. good candidates for full on competitive employment. Yeah, but right. but but they have the right to feel capable. 
Absolutely. And to get make money and yep. to have a social life. That's and, exactly right. Yeah, but it's, all, that, all that kind of stuff. But it's a um, different kind of work. It's not the same kind of work that everyone else is doing. I mean, I think that's where advocates have fallen down. They're trying to say it should be completely equal, but the world isn't equal. Right. That's right. That's <laughs> Thanks, Sharon. Appreciate Thank it. You. Okay. Mr. Rick? Cheryl Cummings, please. Hey, Miss oh. Cheryl. Hello. Hello. Um, I, I just wanted to make some comments. And please. I apologize if I'm repeating things that were already said. Um, but I actually run an uh, after-school program that's based here in Boston. And a major component of what we offer is career exploration. So we have kids um, who are as young as 10, and our oldest is like 20s. Um, Everybody in our program is legally blind. Um, We usually, I usually tell the kids that they're, um, you know, they can stay with us up until what we're doing no longer, like they don't want to do it anymore. And, Mm -hmm. and believe me or not, there does come a time when they're like, no, no, I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) And I say, okay. But what I want to say is um, as part of our career exploration program, um, I work with this really fantastic uh, occupational therapist who um, has sort of part of her um, dream job is really focusing on looking at individual, as an individual, and sort of determining like what are the skills and the knowledge and the preferences of that person. Um, so she, I mean, she's been really fantastic at getting our kids um, to really think about, like, what are they good at? What do they like to do? Um, what do they want to spend, you know, more time learning how to do? Um, and so, and I have kids who have uh, learning disabilities. Um, we, I had, I had one kid who was um, on the autism spectrum and um, didn't, you know, couldn't uh, communicate verbally. And um, we sort of talked with him and his mom and it, it, it so initially people are like well what's he gonna do um and it turned out that his family owned a, a pizza restaurant and um we talked with his mom like why can't he come to the store and help out so i don't know that they they did that initially but there was a point when his mom agreed, yes, he can come. And then we, she started to tell us what a marvelous, really fantastic experience it was for him. Because, I mean, even though he's nonverbal, he's t- t- totally social, um, loves hanging out with people, um, enjoys, you know, interacting with people. So he, like, if you go to their pizza shop, you know, he's there, he greets people. He cleans tables. He sort of you know, clears the tables. He goes with the, the delivery person to drop off pizza, that type of stuff. Um, so, and so I want to say, I mean, I think, you know, um, it is challenging. I mean, when you have kids with multiple disabilities, 
it's really challenging to think of like you know what what are they going to do and yeah. and I, and some kids absolutely need support to accomplish certain tasks um but other kids i mean if you really sort of spend time focusing on sort of their specialty um i mean amazing things can happen um one of my another one of my students um she's been with us a long time i know her grandmother at one point was just depressed like she couldn't imagine what her granddaughter could do at all mm-hmm. um and so we at one time um talk you know kim charleston who runs our brilliant talking book library she offers like work opportunities for kids i talked with kim and she said sure we'd love to have her come and join us and oh my gosh the family put out so many obstacles well you know she's 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 not only blind she's got this other disability and how is she going to get to and from we solve that mm-hmm. who's going to make sure she locks the doors the driver <laughs> we figured that out so and even even to some extent her teacher was not totally supportive of this mm-hmm. but we sort of insisted like she really wants to work let's give her a chance to do this um and she went to the 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 library for a whole summer and did the work and you know my organization we picked up the transportation cost um and the uh in and, and i think we we provided sort of a, a little stipend for for her experience mm-hmm. and um it worked out her grandmother saw that there were ways that we could do this and prior to the pandemic she actually had a job working at um one of the movie theaters how cool is that yeah that's wonderful what a great story cheryl and i i think you've really touched on a couple of things that i would underscore it's important never to give up on kids it's important never to give up on people we need as service providers and caregivers to take the time to listen to what they enjoy doing to watch what they enjoy doing to think about and and work with them to see where they're most comfortable and and then to encourage them along those lines i think with a lot of these kids with severe multiple disabilities those family supports are the most consistent thing in their life and oftentimes it's the families that are going to make the big difference like that pizza family that you mentioned yeah. those those guys stepped up to the plate and we have to figure out ways to support them so that they can support that child moving forward and i also think that you you mentioned a couple of other things that are really important to underscore we're building self esteem when we give people the chance to do something it doesn't have to be full time full salary full anything it needs to be a contribution everyone needs to make a contribution either to the family or to the community to feel good about who they are and so i think what you're doing with your program is really opening those doors and giving kids a chance to do things and that's what they need they need to be challenged they need to make a contribution and i'm very proud of you for doing that that's a, a great I, program you've got going 
and I love your your OT idea as well. Yeah, I think I think that's so cool, Cheryl. Yeah, no, it's but but then you know I'm a fan of yours anyway. Well, and those OTs, those OTs are worth the price of admission. I've got a couple of pediatric OTs that I work with out of Australia who are doing some of the best work I have ever seen with these young people who are blind and have other disabilities. Yeah, they're great. That yeah. I couldn't agree with the two of you more. <laughs> no, I, I want to just, I'm sorry. One, I think, you know, one of the things that I've learned, and I think you said this, is that um, our, our sort of rehab systems, you know, I, I, there's a, I've always felt like a little pressure. You know, there's a time like, oh, it's got to go from yeah. A through B through C. And one of the things I've learned in working with my kids is that they're not on, like, regular timelines, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you can say, yes, you're 19 and you should go to work or whatever. Eh, works for some kids. For Mm -hmm. other kids, they're just not there. And and if that's the case, um, I mean, we have to hope that our systems will allow for that sort of flexibility, They don't often enough, unfortunately. And there's a lot of pressure to to cut out or lessen the funds that are available for adult programs. That is for programs for people under the age to qualify for older blind programs who are not vocationally eligible. And it's scary. It's a mistake. It is a mistake. You know, we, we, we all know basically that timelines are superimposed by someone who didn't have to worry about time. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Miss Cheryl, thank you so much. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. I am so, so proud to hear more about your program. Thank so, you. So let's talk about the population really that we have been talking about for the last little while. We heard 20 years ago, from all the experts in the field, that that vanilla blindness was over as a primary concept, and that and that those of us in the blindness rehab field were going to have to deal with the reality that forty percent or so of the folks who we were going to serve were going to be multiply disabled, and that 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 percentage would rise until the majority of the folks that we were serving would would in fact be multiply disabled. Um, A, do you know if those statistics have held up? But B, more importantly, what kind of a job do you think that vocational rehabilitation is doing um, dealing with with those populations? Well, I, I see it a little differently than they saw it because, you know, I deal with people. And what I've noticed is that I've never gone wanting for clients (laughs) (laughs) so it makes me think that you know they can talk all they want about there's no more vanilla blind coming down the pike but the truth of the matter is the only real shift that i've seen in the population is in the under 25 population and in the under 25 population i have seen a shift toward more and more people with multiple disabilities But the interesting thing about life is that when you squish down on one side, something pops up on the other side. 
<laughs> it's kind of like balloons. You know, you push down on the balloon at one end and the air all pops up at the other end. And it's the same thing with these populations. In the same period of time that we've been seeing this major increase in younger children with more serious disabilities, including lots of neurological disabilities, let's call a spade a spade. Yes. We've seen a huge increase in older blind. Age-related macular degeneration has just wrecked havoc with the general population because so many more people are living longer. And frankly, what I see is that a lot of those older people, i.e. people over the age of 65, don't want to quit working. They may not want to work full-time, full-on, but they want to continue to work and make contributions to the community. Because when I think about work, I don't think just about an eight-to-five or five-day-a-week job until you're 64 and then everything stops. But a lot of us, myself included, who have slipped past that age of 64, continue to work. We may not work as many hours, or in some cases we may work more, but we do a lot of things voluntarily. We do a lot of things to keep contributing. And I want my blind and low vision friends to be out there doing the same thing as I'm doing, working, volunteering. I just don't think the population has shifted in that that radical direction that people anticipated that it would. Right. In fact, when I looked at the survey data and I looked at the people's um, eye conditions, it was fascinating to me to see how many of the people, uh, it, the largest percentage of people, it was at least a third of the people, had disorders that were related to the retina. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean. I can relate to that. Yeah, a lot of people (laughs) can. I mean, from retinopathy of prematurity to macular degeneration, we cover all the bases on that one. We (laughs) do. Mr. Rick, do we have another hand? I'm sorry, Karen. No, I was just going to say, I think times have changed and we've seen some differences, but I think when you average it all out, we still have the same kind of breakout. Well, I, and, 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 and I think that's encouraging to hear, frankly. Mm-hmm. Mr. Rick? Yeah, Candace, please. Hello, Karen. It's so great to hear your voice. Oh, Candace, hi. Um, this vocational assessment that you discussed earlier, I was just curious. I've used um, SurveyMonkey multiple times, but I was just wondering... Will it be available in accessible formats? It is accessible, Candace, in SurveyMonkey. You know, we put a lot of energy into making sure that the items were not only accessible, but user-friendly. Let me put it that way. Right. My question was, you know, Will it be accessible? I mean, will it be available in other formats besides SurveyMonkey? I've used SurveyMonkey multiple times, but I was just curious. Yeah, I we have made it available in print and Braille as well, Candice. Mm-hmm. But because it's a research project and we're trying to keep up with the data, 
we've asked the the um, individuals who complete it in hard copy <clears throat> then have that data submitted in SurveyMonkey so that we can track the data. Oh, okay. Yeah, that, that was my main question. I, I didn't know if I could could read it in hard copy and submit oh, sure. it via SurveyMonkey. Yeah. The, 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 the other thing, Candace, is that we, we had a, a long debate over, over whether or not we thought that um, folks like Candace or folks like Paul um, could be allowed just to take the test and then send it into the evaluator. Mm-hmm. And, and we decided, no, um, we really think that it's important that, that part of the test is actually the interaction between the evaluator, that is the person who's going to be looking at the scores and doing the scoring, and the person who's taking the test. So we actually discourage people from taking it independently and, and really prefer that they take it in conjunction with an evaluator because they're going to get more out of it. So when, so my other question then, Paul, is in taking it with an evaluator, how is that done? Is that done over Zoom or with a phone? Um, it's, it's sometimes done both ways. It's often done in person. So, right. So, uh, you, you know, um, it, it's been difficult with the pandemic, and that's certainly impacted, but a lot of our stuff was done pre-pandemic in terms of the surveys. So we were actually able um, to do it in person, maybe meet it at, at, at a Division of Blind Services office or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's ideal, Candice, but we have been doing it since the pandemic struck via phone and Zoom so that people can do it virtually. And Karen, will it be available in Colorado? Well, we don't have an agreement at the moment with Colorado. Paul and the foundation have a memorandum of understanding with Canada through DBS, Division for Blind Services. So if Colorado were interested, they would have to negotiate with um Florida DBS and the foundation to do a memorandum of understanding. There's no reason why they couldn't, but that's- it's a pretty simple document and, and, and it's pretty standardized now. So just tell your folks in Colorado to get in touch with us and we'll see what we can do. Okay. Thanks, Thanks Candace. I'll, I'll, uh, we need to chat at some point. Very good. Candace. <laughs> my pleasure. Mm-hmm. Mr. Rick, anybody else? Yeah, Anisio's back. Anisio. I'm, I'm back. Just just Yay. an observation. This this could be a whole discussion for a, a whole topic for another uh, another program. But Karen, you you are so right in mentioning the shifting populations and the the growing number of of older people that still want to work and 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 the multi multiple multiple disabilities among the, the people below 25. Unfortunately, what the and Paul, you touched on this, I think, beginning. Unfortunately, what the WIOA has done by 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 requiring the fifteen percent of of uh, VR funds to be spent with uh, folks uh, under twenty four uh, has really drastically reduced the number of dollars available to work with adult, with the adult population, and then right. obviously. Even that retired population, obviously, you know, you have the independent living funds. There are so, so 
far limited from what they need yep. to be. You know, yeah. Amount. So that that's the only observation I wanted to make. Yeah, I think in these deal that we really are going to have to have a very strong, or you guys are going to have to pull together a very strong legislative platform that advocates for increased funding for older blind because it's well, it, huge. It's interesting that the the uh, recently the Vision Serve Alliance and the and AR have uh, strengthened the the uh, AB I forgot what this is, the aging and vision loss. Um, resource uh, group, and there's a number of us that are involved with that. To to to, to one trying to to increase the amount of money for independent living from the Title Seven Part Two, but also explore third-party reimbursement and do all types of stuff to 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 bring more money for that population. Good, good. That's exactly the kind of advocacy you need to do. Right. Anicio, thank, thank you, you sir. Thank you again, yep. Paul, and we'll talk soon. Great. We will. Ms. Karen, you have about two minutes to perhaps share some information if folks want to get in touch with you, and also to, to sum up if, if you'd like. Well, thank you, Paul. I, I appreciate that. Let me begin with the first thing that you mentioned, which is contact information, because I... I do know many of the people who have spoken on the phone, and it is an absolute delight to hear your voices and be in touch. But anyone on the call or who listens to this podcast in the future, I would welcome your comments, your questions, your observations. You're very welcome to reach out to me at any point. The best way to reach me is email. And the trick, Paul mentioned it, is you have to spell my name correctly. <laughs> it is K-A-R-E-N-W-O-L-F-F-E. If you don't put both those F's and the E, it will go to some other big bad wolf. It will not come to me. So just my name, Karen Wolf, no dots, no dashes, no underscores, at gmail.com. That will reach me. I will try to turn it around within about 48 hours. If you don't hear back from me, nudge me. There's a couple folks who know that occasionally I get too busy and then I don't respond. But if you give me a gentle nudge, I will remember and I will get back on it. I would, I would welcome comments. I guess what I'd really like to close with is to thank all of you because most of the folks that I've heard from have been hardworking advocates in this field for many, many years, hardworking counselors, hardworking managers, directors of organizations. And I, I really appreciate you coming on board and listening this evening, because I think you probably could have done just as much, if not better, in many instances than I. So thank you very much for your willingness to listen to me. And a reminder to all of you that I think we have to walk the walk. If we really do believe, and I certainly do, that blind and visually impaired people can make contributions in this world, we have to make that happen ourselves. We have to provide opportunities for young people and old people, whomever comes to our door, to make the contributions that they are able to make in life. Support them, 
but not do for them. Let them do for themselves so that they can catch the kudos and feel the warmth of accomplishment. We contribute to people's self-esteem when they let when we let them be what they want to be. <laughs> and that's the lesson I've learned in my field and in my career is that people have a great deal to offer. They have a great deal that they want to do. We just need to let them do it and support them so that they can do it. Make accommodations, make uh, questions when we don't understand things so that they can be successful in life. So thank you again for the opportunity. I have loved every minute of it. It's been a delight to hear so many of my friends and acquaintances on the call. And if there's anything I can do, just let me know. Ms. Karen, thank you so much. Just to let everyone know, next week we will have another interesting Tuesday topics, I think, in that we will have Robert Doyle, director of the Florida Division of Blind Services, talking about services during the pandemic as a rehab director. Good night, everyone.